Hello, I'm Simon Talbot. And I'm Wendy Dean. And this is Moral Matters. So today we're going to be speaking with Deborah Morris, and she is a clinical psychologist who works with vulnerable populations in the area of trauma research in the UK. Well, unfortunately, I wasn't able to be in the original recording of this with Wendy, but there are a lot of pertinent discussion points that I want to bring up. And I I have to give two apologies at the start of this. The first being that um, just like uh, many busy physicians who are listening to this, I get called away with very little notice sometimes. And and that's the reason I couldn't be at this recording. The second is uh, there's somebody using a backhoe uh, just outside the window here. And no matter how hard we tried to avoid the beeping, you are going to hear a little bit of beeping of it backing up intermittently during this recording. So I apologize. Just keeping it real. (laughs) Well, Deborah works in a, a very, very tough area of healthcare. She works in forensic psychology with vulnerable populations. And so that has brought her in touch with moral injury in in many forms. And uh, I think your discussion with her brings up a lot of really interesting aspects and very in-depth discussion about how the UK health system and how psychology interact and uh, how moral injury is one of the outcomes of that. Yeah. So let's have a listen. Deborah Morris, I'm so glad to have you here with us on the podcast. We've been talking back and forth for the past year, I think, almost, about moral injury. And it's really interesting to have your perspective as somebody from a different healthcare system. So one of the things that people say often is, if we just changed our healthcare system and how we pay for things, maybe we would get rid of moral injury. But I think you have a different perspective on that. So we're delighted to have you here with us today. I'm really pleased you asked, Wendy. It's it's really exciting to be here and to be given the opportunity, I guess, to talk about the UK perspective, but also just to kind of make more links with the US, which is leaps ahead of us in terms of understanding of moral injury. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. After after talking with you, I think um, you guys are certainly holding your own. so could you just help our listeners understand what your background or what your background is and where you are right now, sure. what you do for work? So I'm a consultant clinical psychologist um, and I work for a charity that specializes in supporting people in inpatient services who have engaged in behaviors that could have attracted a conviction or they have been through the court system and have been found that because of their mental disorder, they need to be supported and detained in a hospital setting rather than in a prison setting. So for the last 12 years, I've been working with men and women who have complex mental health needs as well as offending behavior needs. And about sort of 18 months ago, I moved into a split post that's more kind of academically based as well as still having clinical responsibilities to focus purely on trauma research and trauma CPD. And we we very much focus on the marginalized sections of society. So trauma can be quite elitist in terms of who it studies and who it deems kind of worthy of support. We focus on the people that are often excluded from trauma research. So people who offend, people with intellectual disabilities, older people um, and males who sit outside of kind of the veteran system. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, in one of our conversations, you described the population in the U.S. 
a large part of our prison population also struggles with mental health issues. But I think what you said in the UK was that, that that's different. Yeah, within the UK, if you have a, if you, if it is felt that your offence was in some way mitigated or in the context of mental disorder, you are diverted to a secure hospital system where you are not necessarily sentenced to a period of time, but you are detained under the Mental Health Act, and your treatment is essentially treatment. Your detention is treatment based rather than kind of punishment led. That said, even within our prison system, we still have quite significant presence of healthcare teams who are there to meet the mental health needs of offenders. And we do have um, a, a series of prisons that have what we call pipes, which is psychologically informed prisons, where there is a much more focus on trauma and healthcare because the links between the two are considerable. Yeah. And one of the things that we've talked about is the concept of moral injury in the folks who are working in those settings. Mm. And um, I think it's really an interesting way to think about it, how, how trauma and moral injury fit together. For, for our workforce or for our service users? Either. Either, okay. Or both. So within, within the, we'll start with workers, is within these settings, you as a worker are exposed to what we call direct sources of trauma. That can be either violence, sexual violence, self-harm, or witnessing the suicide attempts of the men and women or children that we work with. So you can develop trauma-type symptoms from that direct exposure. You can also develop secondary trauma or vicarious trauma from being witness to the significantly traumatizing histories or experiences of our service users. I think where moral injury adds significant value is that acknowledgement of shame and guilt in terms of your own behavior, the behavior of your colleagues or your organization. And what we have certainly found with our recent, with our recent research is that moral injury is very much prevalent within our workforces, within secure mental health care, as well as predicting your well-being in the workplace. And what we found is there were factors intrinsic to the roles that were linked to moral injury and your subsequent well-being. And what were those factors? It was your exposure to violence as well as how often you engaged in restrict what we call restrictive practices, which mm. is restraining patients or how often you uh, worked with patients in seclusion. So if you are restraining patients on a regular basis or secluding patients on a regular basis, you have significantly higher levels of moral injury. And that was a really strong finding in our female staff. And I think it's important to flag up one of the other things that we found that I don't think necessarily gets reported in the moral injury literature is the impact that intersections have. So we did find that um, the drivers for moral injury in men and women were different and as well as within different ethnic minority groups also. So certainly one of the take home messages for us was whatever interventions we put in place need to recognize a diverse range of drivers. Yeah. And uh, as a psychiatrist, I remember being involved in some of those incidents yeah. when I was doing inpatient work and feeling that deep conflict between wanting to heal and feeling like this was, this was not what I was, this was not part of what I viewed as healing. 
Yeah, and as a, as a psychologist on a, on a women's ward um, for many years, and our, our women's wards experience much more distress and violence than our male wards, is I, I can absolutely relate to that. And, and some of our follow-up studies are looking at what exactly is it about restraining someone that is a source of moral injury? Is it about the gravity of the violence that led to that incident? Is it about you actually pinning down another human being who is acutely distressed? Yeah. Is it about the violence you then experience and the threats in those restraints which can happen? Is it about the behavior of your colleagues? If you're restraining someone, and I think we've all seen probably videos on YouTube when officers or other people are involved in restraining people, is people don't always behave in ways that are appropriate. And what do you do? Do you speak out or do you stay quiet? So I think there are lots of different um, areas of conflict. And I think, I think certainly sometimes it's a sense of, although restraint is a measure of last resort, that sense of could we have done something differently? What if we'd had better treatments? What if we'd had better medication? What if we'd had more staff? So I think the, the causes of moral injury and its relationship with restraint are, are multifaceted. And they might be different for different professionals. Right. Or what if I knew that there was something different to do, but I didn't have the agency to speak up? Sure, sure. And certainly, yeah, we also found a relationship between people's confidence to speak up and their, well, social support and also their sense of moral injury. Hmm. So that ability to feel that you have a voice um, and the confidence to speak out, I think, is a huge factor within that also. Um, I think related to that, restraint is quite rightly heavily regulated within the UK. And there is an awful lot of quite appropriate scrutiny. At the same time, those staff often feel very much victimised. They're kind of concerned about the repercussions if a restraint is required. Sure. So at the same time, you've got that sort of external source of... I'm going to have to fill out a bunch of forms. And if I don't fill out the bunch of forms right, then that's also going to be um, a source of conflict. So even after the restraint, there is the sources of conflict around the degree of paperwork, the scrutiny of the paperwork. The paperwork's appropriate. It's still, though, a source of, of distress and it takes you away from, from patient care. Um, so there is lots of factors that are probably in that process that contribute to that relationship. Plus, yeah. it's really hard to sit and restrain someone who you do have a, you know, a therapeutic or professional relationship with and then maintain that afterwards. Right. Right. That's so true. So one of the things that you, that you are very clear about is that there's sort of primary trauma, secondary trauma, and then you talk about moral injury as a separate entity. And so one of the questions that we get not infrequently is, how are those linked together? And, oh, by the way, how does depression factor into all of this? Yeah. And from our perspective, they're very different entities. They may, they may be comorbid with each other. Mm -hmm. They may co-occur. But that doesn't mean that one is causative of the other or the same thing. Mm. Is that... Does that follow what you have seen or are you seeing different? I think I would argue the same, that they can, they can sit alongside each other. I guess it's like if you think of that kind of classic Venn diagram of you've got PTSD on one side, moral injury on the other, and you've got that kind of space in the middle. And it's, it's quite possible to experience primary or secondary trauma 
without having a resulting moral injury. And I think it's that key relationship of shame and guilt that is what sort of delineates them from each other. And certainly in terms of our, in our staff group, but also in our service users, um, where moral injury is not overly, well, it's not particularly investigated, though we do have quite a large study underway exploring that, is is the acknowledgement of shame and guilt as, as, as the factor that's key in separating it from PTSD. Mm. That's really interesting. So I think your situation in St. Andrews is interesting in the context of the UK health system. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be really interesting for our listeners to understand mm-hmm. how how you fit and how you're separate from the NHS or how you how you're related to the NHS. Sure. So I think there's often a perception in the UK that all healthcare is provided within the National Health Service. And certainly in terms of physical health care, that is predominantly the case. But within mental health care, there is a much more significant presence of independent and charitable sector providers. So we would be primarily funded from the NHS in that 99% of our patients would come from NHS and NHS funding sources. But the NHS, for whatever reason, is not able to support those individuals. Sometimes it's to do with the complexity of need. Sometimes it's to do with the very kind of specialist nature of that population or the care that they require. So we sit alongside the NHS. Our patients are NHS. Our funding is NHS. But we are not subject to um, the same, I guess, kind of policies and procedures. But we are still subject to the same overall inspection procedures within the UK. And certainly what there has been quite a significant growth in the last few years within mental health care, particularly forensic mental health care, is the growth of for-profit organisations within the UK, including those funded by the US and invested from by the US. And have you seen that having an impact on the experience of moral injury? Within independent healthcare, that's a really difficult one to answer. I I'm not aware of any um, research that's looked at moral injury in independent healthcare, but certainly there is an argument for it being a source of moral injury in terms of gaining profit from other people's distress. People in forensic services have typically been in services since childhood. They've often had multiple placement failures, mm. and yet the funding for their care is in part diverted for profit. So I can see at a theoretical level why, well, that could be possible. Sure. You also had an interesting um, perspective on St. Andrews and its history mm-hmm. when we were talking before the podcast started. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really pertinent to this idea of how St. Andrews sits within the NHS mm. or within your healthcare system. So the charity, and I'm sure people who are sort of better historians of the charity than I would probably be aghast at my simple history of St Andrews, but it, it's roughly kind of 180, 182 years old. And it started off with one building, um, essentially an old-fashioned asylum that was funded for entirely from local money. Um, so local landowners, local benefactors, they funded the building of St Andrews, you know, coming up to 100 years ago, when the NHS was formed, um, 
the, the trustees and the board elected to remain independent. So not for profits, there is no profit, we don't have shareholders, we don't have you know, money we have to return to any source, it's ploughed back into service user care or research or, or medical education. We're also a teaching hospital as well as being um, a provider of, of direct healthcare services. And I think that sort of semi-independent status from the NHS can work in our favour in the sense that we are not tied down by the bureaucracy that can come with the NHS. I mean, the NHS is a significant source of national pride and it is the biggest employer in the UK. I don't know if you're aware of that in the States. It's one and a half million people are employed by the NHS. And I think globally, it's the fifth largest employer in the world. So wow. it, is, it is a massive source of, of national pride. But what comes with large organisations is bureaucracy. And one of the things that we are able to do here with less process is innovate, particularly kind of around research. So such as setting up the, the development and trauma centre that I, that I lead is that was you know, very much supported by our leadership. And I think, again, sitting outside of the, of, of the NHS is our leadership I think have slightly more freedom to be innovative around these sorts of areas and our leadership have been incredibly supportive about acknowledging moral injury but also taking the first steps to try and address it in, in, in many different ways. Yeah, so that that's really interesting. It sounds like you have a bit more autonomy or yeah. ability to adapt. But also, can you tell me how your leadership is looking at solutions? So there's, there's a number of um, different sort of initiatives and directives is for, on the one hand, we have a staff trauma support service, and that's run by um, Dr. Annette Greenwood. And that is a support service purely for staff who experience trauma from whatever source within the workplace, or if there's a significant trauma outside of the workplace, that service has been extended not, I would say, as a result necessarily of the pandemic, but just generally increased recognition of um, the need to support staff. We also have a large charity-wide initiative um, rolling out what we call compassion-focused staff support, which is an initiative based on compassionate approaches, and that is a dedicated staff space for reflective practice and support that seeks to increase compassion towards self and others and also from others so the three the three flows of compassion and we have a dedicated uh, consultant compassion focused therapist dr kate lucre who comes in um, every week to support staff so staff go through a day of training to help them understand the language and the concepts and to develop some of the basic skills around being compassionate to yourself and allowing others to be compassionate towards you and you to be compassionate to others and that is um, a so charity-wide trial that is currently ongoing, and that is directly to try and reduce moral injury, and it's particularly its relationship with um, compassion. Yeah, that's fascinating. So one of the things that we found here is that a lot of our clinicians struggle with the sort of the bureaucratic hurdles that get put up in large healthcare systems, and. A lot of them find that if they could break those down and just kind of smooth out the road, they would experience a whole lot less distress. And I'm wondering if St. Andrews or your charity is able to be more responsive to challenges like that as well. We're certainly able to be more responsive to internally imposed bureaucracy. 
and every so often we do have bureaucracy busting initiatives. So if it's within our control to change it, we do. But all healthcare systems, whether they sit inside or outside of the NHS, come under the the supervision, if, if for want of a better word, of the CQC, which is our they oversee our kind of our quality and the quality assurance of our services. And it's you find that those external regulators, and they're in a very, very difficult position. Because on the one hand, they need to have systems that are comprehensive enough to make sure that all aspects of care are thoroughly examined. At the same time, that can lead to bureaucracy that can then compromise your ability to actually be available to provide care for patients. And I think the CQC would probably acknowledge themselves it's, it's a real tension. I guess a layer above that, which we cannot avoid within the UK, is I'm sure you have this in the States, and that's kind of target driven cultures of certain sort of benchmarks and certain information that needs to be reported or certain sort of outcome measures that need to be reported. So again, if it's in our control to remove them, to reduce hurdles, we have a, we have a, a leadership that is absolutely sympathetic, but balancing that against not compromising quality. The layers that come from the NHS and the CQC are largely out of our control um, to, to kind of look at. And I think within healthcare, I would, agree that there are external pressures, regulatory and funding that contribute to moral injury. But I think there's one thing in healthcare we haven't done that the military folks do quite well, and that's look at our own transgressions. So whereas in you talk to kind of returning soldiers, and I've had some limited work with veterans, they will acknowledge that they have done things that are not that they, in the theatre of war that looked okay, but outside of it, they, they kind of struggle with. Within healthcare at moral injury, it still feels sometimes that we are externalising the sources of moral injury without necessarily acknowledging our own contributions. And my, my concern with that is shame and guilt are still the elephants in the room. Right. So I think in, in some ways there is a risk that we could collude by looking consistently for external sources of moral injury without questioning in ourselves, you know, I, you know, I wrote a care plan that led to someone being, exclu- you know, secluded for nine months. How do I feel about that? Well, actually, that's too painful to think about. So instead, I'm going to focus on the fact that I have to do a lot of paperwork associated with it. So I do recognise that the bureaucracy is a significant source. I also wonder if sometimes it's also a way of avoiding looking at our own, um, what we bring to moral injury in itself. And that's where I think looking at moral injury within forensic settings is provides a good arena to ask those questions because there are constant need to reflect on your own behaviour and your own choices that are probably not as readily available as they are in other areas that allow for those sorts of reflections. Right. It feels like that meta discussion of the, the moral injury within the moral injury. Yeah. I'm, how can I continue to work in this system that I feel complicit in creating? Yeah. 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 And where's the place that I can break that cycle? Sure, sure. But certainly within forensics, we are, because forensics is such a challenging area, the clinicians that work within it tend to be highly skilled, highly resilient, and very, very highly trained. We have a lot of training thrown at us. And I can certainly think of a few years ago being asked by nursing staff, do you think the victims of, the, of, the, of the, the crimes that these guys commit, do you think they get a consultant psychologist doing their PTSD work? Do you think they get the kind of that level of help? 
So I think in terms of kind of questioning your own choices as a clinician, um, do I think I'm right to work it? Absolutely, I do. Can I see why other people would question that and why it's useful to question in yourself? You know, if I'm doing the PTSD work with someone who is sexually offended on that they develop PTSD from their own sexual offence, that's also a potential source of moral injury. Right. If I'm working with people that have significantly harmed children so that they can get back out there, what if I make an error in a risk assessment and somebody goes on to re-offend? So within that, looking at our own sense of responsibility, and I do find you know, the links between moral injury and um, obsessive compulsive disorder really fascinating, particularly within <laughs> clinicians and that, ele- that sort of grandiose sense sometimes of responsibility that we hold. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that is, that is certainly an area to look at in the future. But yeah, we also need to kind of look at what we bring, not just complicit in working in a system, but our own behavior within those systems. Right. So one of the, um, you mentioned the military, and one of the, the things that I got so much out of was the conference that you organized in March, mm-hmm. where you brought together experts from multiple different areas to talk about moral injury. Mm -hmm. And I would, I would love for you to share with the listeners what your goal was and what, what the reasoning, the rationale was behind Mm -hmm. doing that conference. It was certainly a who's who of moral injury. It was, it was, there were some fantastic speakers. So the goal initially was just to float the idea is, is this an idea? Is this a concept that an English audience would be interested in hearing and do they think it has mileage. So initially when we set it up, it was going to be a special interest group meeting and 160 delegates later, it it grew into something (laughs) a lot more more significant. Um, And I remember our fantastic PA, Claire Oxley, coming in to see me and telling me that we'd had 10 people from the Foreign Commonwealth Office book onto the conference. I'm thinking, why have we got diplomats coming to our conference? Oh my. So the idea initially was, is this a thing that people feel is relevant? I thought it was relevant, but I think sometimes I have ideas that other people don't have. But initially it was about floating an idea. And then it was to see if there was some mileage in organizing kind of follow-up activities. Is there something that we can learn from this? And I think what was most pleasing about that conference is when we looked at the conference feedback, aside from the fact that the, the speakers all got fantastic feedback, was... 97% of people who attended said they would change their practice as a result of attending the conference. Wow. So that tells me the concepts that were discussed resonated with a very wide audience. Yeah. And remind me who you had, um, you had folks from the military, from forensic psychiatry, from the police force, law enforcement. We had, so we had Professor Edgar Jones and Vicki Williamson from the King's military group. Um, and they presented um, an, a couple of papers. We had Esther Murray, who presented on moral injury in frontline medics and healthcare professionals. We had Karenza Hocken, who presented a really interesting paper on shame and guilt and anger and how, how we work with those in a compassionate way. Myself and a colleague presented a paper looking at is mental health legislation a source of moral injury because it's administered in a very inequitable way in terms of ethnicity and I I can't remember I think those were those are the main papers that were presented and I'm going to feel awful now when I oh we had our veteran service right, also veteran present service. on um, how do you assess how do you approach assessments of moral injury in 
in veteran populations. So yeah, there's it's it it's, it it was a concept, and the and the and the talks absolutely resonated with the audience. Yeah, I learned a lot. It was a fabulous day. Mm. And is are there plans to make that a regular occurrence, or was that a? Yeah. So the next moral injury conference will take place on the twenty second of March next year. We're hoping you'll come back and join us, Wendy. Again, it'd be <laughs> awesome if you could. Uh, well, Nothing I would like love putting you on the spot. <laughs> Well, it was it was a great day. So yes, um, but I, I would love for the listeners to have that opportunity. Mm. So um, we'll keep it a, up to date and put it in the show notes when it's ready and all that. Absolutely. I think one of the things that we we made a conscious decision at with the with the conference this year and with the conference next year is to keep COVID in the sidelines as a concept. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I have a I have a difficult relationship with. Lots of research coming out about COVID and its relationship with moral injury. On the one hand, it's it's fantastic to see the concept being given um, much more prominence, much more consideration. My concern is that it will be seen as an artifact of the pandemic. Correct. But also, again, sort of touching on what I said before is it's a way of externalizing the source. It's not the organization that's a source of moral injury. It's not my role. It's not my behavior. It's this nefarious um, virus that is under no one's control. So I think there is a risk with tying COVID with moral injury that we forget the sources of moral injury that significantly predate the virus. Um, And certainly in terms of our own research, which we're going to be submitting at the end of August, is there was absolutely no relationship between moral injury and the perception of the impact that COVID has had on you over the last eight, over the last year, um, there was as less significant a relationship as possible. So, from our point of view, whilst COVID may have a relationship with your well-being, independently, so does moral injury, and that's not going to go away with the pandemic. And, yeah. and thankfully, our leadership have have kind of bought into that, and they they kind of recognise this is something that we need to commit to. Um, so the conference next year will be a either COVID light touch or a COVID free space. And it'll be focusing on naming some of the elephants in the room that we're still not naming with co- with um, moral injury. Yeah, that, that's great. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think I think COVID just kind of exposed what was already there. Yeah. Um, it didn't it didn't create it. It just exposed it. And yeah. we, we didn't have an option but to stare at it. Yeah, I mean, it's got the potential to accelerate research. I think it's also got the potential to make research very niche and looking at Mm -hmm. sort of narrow concepts rather than the wider organizational concepts and factors that we know lead to moral injury. So it's, yeah, I have a a kind of mixed feelings about that that kind of research coming out. Right. There's a place for it, but it's not all of it. Absolutely, absolutely. But certainly, if you, I don't, I'm not sure what it's like in the States, but certainly in the UK, any research outside of military that's come out about COVID in the last sort of 18 months has been, sorry, about moral injury has been really quite closely tied to, to COVID mm. rather than looking at kind of wider systemic factors that can contribute to that. So, yeah. Right. Well, I, I look forward to the work that you submit in August, seeing that, and then to continuing our conversations before the conference in March. This has been really fantastic, and you guys are doing amazing work. That's very kind, Wendy. We're, we're well supported, and that makes a difference. I think that's sort of a message in terms of kind of tackling moral injury is it has to come from the leadership down. Yeah, definitely. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was super. Thank you. Well, Wendy, that was a really interesting discussion. I guess we should start with some of the research that uh, Deborah and her group are doing and the idea that moral injury is present and predicts your well-being while taking care of these difficult patients is, is sort of a given. It's sort of what we've talked about a lot. I thought it was particularly interesting, though, that she talked about some of the aspects of some of our own uh, interaction with patients being uh, difficult for moral injury, right? Restraining patients and this discordance between healing and helping somebody and what you may need to do. And that comes in all different forms. But in her situation, I think it was very uh, present when you're talking about particularly restraining a forensic patient for their safety or for your safety and some of the difficult moral questions that come up with that. Yeah, I think there's nowhere probably in healthcare where that happens more consistently, except maybe maybe in the emergency room it happens as often. Mm-hmm. But trying to have that balance in the moment of, am I helping? Am I hurting? How are my colleagues responding to this? Is it their own trauma that's informing it? How do we parse out these very difficult topics in the moment? And I think it's a little bit more explicit in this area than often the types of moral injury we talk about. So we're often speaking about moral injury, which is, you know, an EHR making it hard for me to interact with the patient. I think one of the good things about research for Deborah is that it's kind of in your face when you're restraining a patient that there are some tensions between you and what you're doing and what you're required to do as part of um, your job. Right. But that will help us clarify where the bright lines are, and then we can move from that to look at what the more nuanced situations might be. Precisely, precisely. Along those lines, another thing that she brought up that I thought was was interesting is to try and clarify this area of research between PTSD and moral injury and where depression fits in. And she talks about a Venn diagram. And I think we've all sort of alluded to that in the past, but there is an awful lot of overlap and there is an awful lot of confusion and conflation of some of these terms and some of these symptoms. And so, you know, a huge part for her was talking about this idea of shame and guilt being a a real premise of uh, moral injury in, in her line of research. Yeah. And I think, I think the important thing to keep in mind about that is that Occam's razor doesn't always have to apply, that sometimes there is more than one thing happening at a time. And sometimes it is moral injury and depression and secondary trauma. And that doesn't necessarily take away from any one of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's a great point. You know, I thought that was interesting talking to someone from the UK because we often think that these things are sort of isolated to the health system that we're working in. Obviously, that's not the case. But one thing that Deborah talked about was the growth of for-profit mental health care in the United Kingdom. And that was something I wasn't really even aware of. But I found that fascinating that she used the concept of making profit from others' distress as being a sort of fundamental part of moral injury within the for-profit mental health care system. And frankly, in any for-profit health care system, making profit from someone else's distress has to impact you in some way. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, it's, it's troubling that we're exporting some of this condition. Right. At the same time, she also acknowledges that it exists even outside of that system. So mm-hmm. even if we had a single-payer healthcare system, 
we aren't necessarily going to escape the conditions that put us at risk for moral injury. Right. And they are very proud of the NHS in the UK. They have a system that has some real upsides and some real positives. Of course, there's everything's a two-edged sword in the situation, right? But they're very forward-thinking. And as far as the work that Deborah has been doing in this, they're really on the cutting edge of thinking about ways to move forward and thinking about ways to actually help their staff in very practical ways with you know, trauma support staff. And she talked about compassion-focused staff support dedicated people who are actually working in this area and whose job is to focus on the staff and how do we make their jobs manageable for them and how do we deal with the things they've got and bureaucracy busting initiatives right how do we you know accept that there are going to be some hurdles but how do we reduce them which you know these are all things we've spoken about but it's really nice to see them being implemented in a health system in real life for sure. It's great to see the work that they're doing. I guess the, the final point I would make is I think uh, Deborah is one of the thought leaders in this area, particularly when it comes to thinking about conceptual frameworks for moral injury and the idea of internal and external contributors to this. So, you know, acknowledging that there are, and we've spoken about this a lot, systems causes that make moral injury more challenging or make it harder to address but that some of the decisions we make can also contribute to that. Um, so I, I really loved her comments on COVID as well. The idea that, again, that moral injury was here before COVID. COVID has unmasked some of this stuff. Right. But we can't walk away from this last 18 months or two years or whatever it ends up being right. and say, moral injury was caused by COVID. And so now we're good. COVID's gone away. We don't have this problem anymore. So I really appreciated her acknowledging that very important point. That's so true. I, I mean, I, I really worry that we're going to think that if we fix COVID, we're going to fix moral injury and burnout and everything else. And it's important to remember that it, it, it was happening well before and it's likely to continue happening well after. No question. Well, Wendy, thank you again for um, for uh, speaking with Deborah, and of course, thank you to Deborah for for doing this work and for speaking with us. I mean, I think there's a there's a lot of um, direction, a lot of interest, and uh, hopefully, we continue to move forward. Yeah, for sure. It was a great conversation. As always, thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. And if you want to continue the conversation, you can go to our website, fixmoralinjury.org, or find us on Facebook at Moral Injury of Healthcare, Instagram at Moral Injury, and Twitter at WDNMD, and Simon Talbot MD, and at Fix Moral Injury. Our next episode will be speaking with Ron Purser, who's the author of McMindfulness. We'll talk about how to use mindfulness as an advocacy tool rather than as a tolerance tool. So if you're listening, please keep up the ratings and reviews. Keep uh, listening to us and talking to us and sending us messages. If there are things you'd like us to speak about or if there are people you'd like us to talk to, we would love to hear from you. Please share this with other people and uh, rate us, etc. So thanks for listening and stay well. Thank you so much.